You're listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM KVCU Boulder, Denver, 98.9 FM Translator K255DA Boulder, and we're always on Radio1190.org. I think you know that, though. My name's Lucy. I'm your news director, and you're listening to News Underground. We've got a really fun show today for you, uh, and I'm kicking it off with a guy who delivers dreams. Matthias Svalina uh, goes around on a bike about 35 miles uh, in a morning and delivers dreams. And we're just going to talk about this because this is fascinating to me. Matthias, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So can you explain what the Dream Delivery Service is? (laughs) Uh, It's a completely useless service. Since everybody has dreams of their own, it's something that you obviously don't need to buy from anybody else. But in another sense, it's this thing I do. I take subscribers, and every day for a month, I write and deliver a dream to their door. So for the ones in the town that I'm in, I'll bike around before dawn and leave a little pink envelope in their door with a tiny dream story or dream poem in it. That is so quaint and just very... (laughs) It's very interesting. I don't think it's a... Uh, I don't know. I couldn't think of anyone who would think of something like that in this day and age. Where <laughs> did the idea come from? Um, it started as a joke, really. My friend, who was a grad student here at Boulder, and I were in Denver, and I was talking about how I needed to find some way to trick people into letting me deliver weird stuff to them every day, that this was my ideal job, and then... The next morning, uh, I kind of thought, maybe. And so I started it as just a one-month, a one-off project in 2014 in Denver. And the Denver Museum of Contemporary Art brought me in in the spring after that, and I did a similar project. And then I started getting interest from places out of town. And for the last two years, I've been traveling all over the country, riding my bike around the country to different cities and delivering dreams in cities and so you you live off your bike basically yes right <laughs> yeah when I tell people where I live I s- just say I live near my bike that's really beautiful <laughs> tell me about your bike because th- this is your house basically well this I have a brand house. new bike actually because I I was very proud that I was biking around the whole country on a, a kind of beat up knocked up uh, 1985 Raleigh Kodiak that I bought on Craigslist for 100 bucks, but then I finally just broke it. So in Chicago, I cracked the frame and had to buy a brand new bike. So I have a great, you know, a plug for Surly. I have a great Surly long haul trucker that has been treating me really well for the last thousand miles or so. That's amazing. Uh, and so this is just, I'm fascinated by this project, and there has to have been something you said it was a joke but Hmm. no one just sells most of their things and then gets on a bike and runs around (laughs) the country why i think it fit me at a point in my life when uh, i had been teaching as an adjunct instructor for years and i'd been writing these books of poems i have five books out and i publish books of poems and it all sort of felt like i was doing things halfway and when I looked at the things that made me happiest in life, it was long distance biking and writing as much as possible. So I thought I'd take a gamble and see what it would be like to only do the things that I love and the things that make me happy and try to build my life up from that. So 
that's what I've been trying to do for the last two years. It's got to be hard, but I, I mean, what are some of the um, difficulties that you've faced? Any specific situations that have been tricky? Um, it's usually a lot of the trickiest things are just the things that are tricky in any complicated or complicated stuff. The logistics of traveling around, of trying to reach people, of finding new housing constantly, of things like that. Um, so everything difficult has been pretty boring, actually. <laughs> and like the fun stuff is the more exciting part where I, you know, I biked from Chicago to here and uh, you know, saw bobcats and tons of hawks and you know, traveled on these roads that uh, I would probably never have been on if it w weren't biking across the country. Uh, yeah, and I think there have been some people about the bike packing movement, but in a different way than what you've been doing. Um, and I mean, we, we fly, we take trains, we take cars, and we have mobile devices where like, even if we're on transport, we're usually not looking out the window. Mm -hmm. So biking across the country, what have you learned from that? What has that shown you that you maybe don't think people see anymore? I think it's fascinating, especially in places where I've been that I lived around. Uh, so I lived around the Mid-Atlantic from being a teenager and in my 20s and had been on all these highways a million times but never gotten off the highways. So biking around uh, Pennsylvania or New York uh, outside the city and just finding how quickly you can find uh, you know, just the most beautiful parklands or the most beautiful kind of uh, hidden exciting things that just going across the country in the on a highway you're never going to find yeah I mean I can't imagine um, and so you're back in Boulder uh, your first delivery starts very late tonight <laughs> very early tomorrow morning however you'd like to conceptualize it yeah I think in about eight, uh, eight or nine hours something like that what does a delivery route look like for you for like a shift mm -hmm. I feel um, today will be my first in Boulder and I plotted it out on the map and it looks like it's about 27 to 30 miles so I'll be kind of circling around the city meandering back and forth and little roads and uh, it's always most exciting in the first couple days of doing it because I'm trying to figure out the quickest routes or I'm sort of discovering strange hills or interesting graffiti or kind of odd uh, quirks of the city. I feel like I end up, because I'm doing this pretty much the same route every day for 31 days uh, at a time when the streets are mostly empty and it just feels like I'm kind of hanging out with the ghosts of the city at that point and sort of experiencing the city in a way that I wouldn't uh, have access to and if I was doing normal life stuff. And you've taught at CU Boulder before um, so What's it like to be back in the town under a totally different context? <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, I was looking back at my uh, teaching ID where I have very short trimmed hair and a very pained smile <laughs> and thinking about how I look kind of ragged now and uh, but I'm generally much happier. Uh, it's nice to be in Boulder. It's nice to be in Boulder uh, and looking around. So much of teaching is about uh, just frantically trying to catch up with work and always being taking home more work. So being in Boulder and being able to look up 
has been really exciting for me so far. And I'm excited to be in Boulder and, uh, I don't know, kind of absorb the city in a different way. As I write these dreams in different cities, I write about 20 to 40 of them a day. I write for about 8 or 10 hours a day. And so I'm trying to just take anything that's in my mind and put it into these dreams. Um, and I'm trying to pick up images from the town and sort of reuse them in surreal or absurdist or dream logic ways. So I'm excited to use the, the flat irons and all the, all the cliches of Boulder into dreams. I'm sure. How many subscribers do you have on a typical city? Uh, ranges from between 40 to about 80. Uh, and I'm not really sure why, what the range is. <laughs> Depends on how I'm reaching out to people and how I'm able to get the word out about what I'm doing. Is it too late to subscribe for Boulder? No, people can subscribe. Um, one time in San Diego, so I do this for 31 days, and somebody subscribed on day 30 in San Diego, and I wrote them thinking that they'd made an error or didn't understand and told them, like, you know, I'm done tomorrow. And they wrote back saying, yeah, that's great. Like, I still want it. Um, so, yeah, people can go to my website and subscribe. It goes through there. And we'll link that in the in the description of our SoundCloud uh, and make sure that's shared out to folks who are listening. Um, it is dreamdeliveryservice.com. Um, and so you have different types of, uh, of subscriptions. And you also mail. Um, you mail dreams. Do you have a lot of long-distance subscribers, per se? I do. It ends up being about half and half. So I think I'm sending to about... 60 people are delivering to about 60 people this month and I think about half of them are in Boulder and half of them are out of Boulder Why do you think people subscribe to you? <laughs> it's I'm just fascinated by the idea and you're right everyone has dreams. So why? Uh, I joke sometimes that it's just to get mail uh, But I think that's kind of true like we're at a point where everything that comes in the mail is usually bad you know, it's a junk mail or bills or, uh, you know, just something that's awful. <laughs> and uh, to get something kind of quirky, something that's literary but not really difficult or complicated, uh, every day, I think, I hope, is a nice surprise and a nice way of sort of offsetting the daily experience. And similarly... I leave the dreams that I write in people's doors, and my vision of it is that they open the door on their way out of to go to work or head to school or do whatever, and a little dream in a pink envelope falls to the floor, and that's an experience that they can have that, I don't know, they never would have been able to have without this weird little service I'm doing. Absolutely. Um, anything else you'd like to say? I know you're also... Part of it is being a poet, um, and so you write all of these by hand. You have these lovely pink envelopes here on the desk. Um, and why, I mean, why poetry in general? And, like, how does it uh, adapt for the circumstance? Mm -hmm. um, why poetry? I can't really answer. It's just the only thing I've ever been doing. <laughs> it's the only thing I've been good at. Uh, in the books that I wrote, I wrote a lot of sort of repetitious surrealism stuff. So I have a book of uh, 44 surreal creation myths and a book of 44 surreal business plans and a book of instructions for children's games and a book of 154 absurdist failed love poems. So this kind of repetition stuff is very appealing to me. It's how my mind works. So as I do the dreams, I just kind of fall into this 
storytelling form and this dream logic form and I don't know it just feels more like real life to me than actual real life put like a poet thank you so much for joining me Matthias I really appreciate it thank you Matthias Svalina will deliver dreams to you. He's going to be in Boulder for the next 31 days. Uh, and if you would like to receive dreams, uh, you can go to his website, dreamdeliveryservice.com, uh, and figure out all of the uh, all of the little details about that. Um, he's really excited for it. He starts tomorrow. Uh, I don't know. I think this is amazing. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Right now, I'm going to play a podcast uh, from an interview we did last week. Um, this was with the authors of Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground on Sacred Land. Uh, Rebecca Robinson and C- Stephen Strom joined me uh, to talk about the book, um, which examines kind of the complex relationship between the people of southeastern Utah um, and the Bears Ears Monument um, and all of the history and politics um, and just personal experiences that people have with that. So without further ado, here this is. Uh, I hope you enjoy and I'll be back with you shortly. You're listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM, 98.9 FM in Boulder, and we're always at Radio1190.org, wherever you are. My name is Lucy. I'm your news director, and I'm interrupting your regularly scheduled programming for a special interview. We're going to talk about the Bears Ears Monument uh, with my friends, Stephen Strom and Rebecca Robinson. They have a book release event tonight. Uh, today is November 8th, if you're not keeping track. Uh, the book release is tonight, 6.30 p.m., in Humanities 150, it's free and open to the public. Uh, they're going to be signing books, talking about the books, and so we thought we'd just bring them on to talk a little bit about about what they found with Bears Ears and what they've been doing. Stephen and Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. So can you give a brief history and a brief context of what's been going on with the Bears Ears Monument for folks who don't know? Yes. Uh, in... Uh, at the end of his term, President Obama uh, declared a Bears Ears National Monument, a 1.35 million acre monument in southeast Utah, which contains an enormous number, over 100,000 uh, archaeological sites that date back uh, more than 10 millennia. Uh, the land, if you're not familiar with it, uh, is replete with red rock mesas, canyons, uh, it's utterly gorgeous landscape, and as I said, replete with uh, Native American uh, artifacts. It was the desire to protect those artifacts that um, motivated the president to uh, declare the uh, the monument, and it um, it led uh, to a good deal of unhappiness in San Juan County, Utah. Uh, which uh, is home to the Bears Ears Monument, and with uh, the help of the largely Republican Utah uh, uh, political establishment, uh, that establishment persuaded uh, President Trump to cut back uh, President Obama's declaration by almost 85 percent, dramatically reducing Bears Ears and dramatically reducing 
the protections uh, that were sought for the uh, native artifacts. Perhaps Rebecca could talk about another essential aspect of, of President Obama's declaration, namely the role of tribes uh, in shaping the management of the land. Sure. Thank you, Steve. What's most noticeable about the creation of Bears Ears National Monument is that it was based on a proposal by five Native American tribes who trace their ancestry to the region, the Navajo, Hopi tribe, Ute Mountain Ute tribe, Zuni, and um, Ute Indian tribe of the Uinta Ure. Um, to them, this land is profoundly sacred, um, and it also contains, as Steve said, um, traces of their ancestry, archaeological resources, as well as um, natural resources, places where they hunt and gather wood. Um, what was unique about the proposal they made to President Obama is they wanted to co-manage this land with the federal agencies um, that manage this land. So that's the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, something that's never been done before. Um, and Obama's creation of this monument really set a new precedent for land management. Um, what uh, happened after uh, the contentiousness of the establishment of this monument was that the Utah political establishment, um, really in conjunction with more conservative folks in San Juan County where the monument is located, lobbied President Trump to reduce the monument. Um, basically citing the uh, their connection to the land and their feeling that Obama's establishment of the monument was a land grab that threatened to rob them of their economic livelihood uh, by preventing ranching and mining um, quite a bit. And so you have this fundamental tension between um, the views and desires of Native American tribes and conservationists to protect and preserve this land in perpetuity, and um, other folks in the region who have made their living through extractive industries who were very concerned about how this would impact their economic future. It's quite a complex situation going on. Um, and so you have this book, Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground on Sacred Land. What motivated both of you to go out and write and photograph for this book? My connection to the area dates back to the late 1970s and early 1980s when my late wife and I were motivated to spend our summers teaching uh, on the Navajo Reservation uh, in uh, northeast uh, Arizona. And it was at that time that we had our first opportunity to explore the Red Rock uh, country in south, uh, southeast Utah and much of the land now com uh, comprising uh, the Bears Ears, uh, Bears Ears Monument. That experience teaching on the Navajo Reservation led to a variety of connections in the native community, uh, connections that uh, in turn led to collaborations with the poet Joy Harjo on a book called Secrets from the Center of the World and with the Navajo poet uh, Laura Tohi on a book called Tseya, which is a Navajo word meaning deep in the rock. So uh, that motivated, um, that sort of explains my connection to the land. And uh, as Rebecca's uh, grandfather, uh, uh, I indoctrinated her early uh, into, um, uh, I, I don't know whether indoctrination is quite the right word, but in any event, I, I, I made certain that she was exposed at a very early age to Red Rock Country, and, and perhaps she can pick up the story from there. 
So Steve and Karen introduced me to these red rock landscapes at a very early age. I believe I was four years old when I first made a trip to the southwest and the land made a deep impression on me then and I've been visiting for the past three decades. I met my husband actually on um, a river rafting trip um, down the San Juan River and so um, really the course of my life has been shaped um, by these landscapes. And what inspired us to write this book was um, Karen's untimely death um, at a ceremony honoring her memory, which we had within um, the land uh, in the original Bears Ears Monument. Um, Steve and I discussed how we could best honor her memory, and we decided that the best way to go about that would, to be, would be to um, embark on a book project to really, initially it was supposed to serve as sort of a love letter to these landscapes um, that have been just so fundamental to who we are for decades. But as we started the process of speaking to people about um, processes to protect the area, we stumbled onto a story far more complex and rich than we ever imagined. And out of that um, reporting and research um, came Voices from Bears Ears. And so do you really take a particular stance as to how the Bears Ears land should be managed in the book? Or is it more of kind of understanding, like you say, the complexity of the situation? I would say that from the beginning, our desire was to present this story through the voices of the people who um, have the strongest connection to the land. Uh, you know, for uh, some Anglo settlers, that goes back six, seven generations, and for Native peoples, it goes back millennia. Um, in their view, they've uh, been there since time immemorial. Um, and some of this is my own background as a journalist, but um, I always skew toward objectivity in my reporting and really felt it was important to let the voices of the people with a connection to the land um, explain these complex issues and um, our desire was to present these voices without any sort of judgment or inherent bias and I hope we were able to accomplish that in our work. That certainly was our uh, objective and what I think will emerge and I don't want to presume what a reader might take out of the uh, out of the book but I, I think reading the book objectively one might get the uh, the idea that despite uh, what appears to be uh, a, a pretty vigorous uh, ideological battle, there is a great deal uh, uh, shared in common between the putative um, uh, fighters on either side of the ring. Uh, in particular, uh, both the, uh, the natives adjacent to the land and those who trace their ancestry to it uh, and uh, the l largely Mormon Anglo population uh, express a, an extraordinarily strong cultural and even spiritual connection to the land. And uh, it turns out that uh, there were even, there was even a great deal of commonality between the two quote-unquote sides uh, when discussing the monument. I think that the um, 
there are various ways that protection could have been achieved and various ways that native voices could have been incorporated <coughs> excuse me could have been incorporated uh, into uh, management um, decisions but uh, un unfortunately uh, ideology and as Rebecca alluded to before past tensions between uh, the two sides and between each side and the federal government really acted to uh, undermine uh, the good deal of uh, commonality that existed. That was just a little bit of my interview with uh, Rebecca Robinson and Stephen Strom. They are the authors of Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground. Uh, they were in here last week to talk about the book and the land and all of that fun stuff. Um, but you can catch the rest of my interview with them on our SoundCloud. We also have it shared on our social media outlets, uh, so you can check that out. Now I'm going to hand the mic over to our news correspondent, John. Uh, if you're not paying attention, you are listening to News Underground on Radio 1190. Uh, and John's going to talk with uh, someone from CAPS about uh, mental health in students because it's an important thing. Uh, and with midterms kind of running through, uh, we've, we've gotten through quite a bit of them, but finals are coming up. Uh, so they're just going to kind of chat all about that. So here's John. Uh, take it away. Right. Thank you, Lucy. All right. I am here with Rachel Lahoda from CAPS. She's one of our CAPS therapists here at CU Boulder. And we are here to talk a little bit about mental health heading into the late, uh, into the later semester and just in general around holidays, seasonal issues, all that. We just want to advise all of you listening at home right now, thank you for listening to our program, but we may discuss some themes that may be either slightly triggering or upsetting for some listeners. So if you would like to, uh, please tune out now. But aside from that, here we've got Rachel from CAPS. Hello. Thank you for having me. No worries. All right. So I think that with um, students heading into the later times of the fall semester, we're mm -hmm. A lot of us are going to start heading home to visit families, mm -hmm. uh, go home for the holidays. Do you think that there are any kind of struggles that some students have as they head home? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the holidays can bring out a lot of different dynamics, both family-wise as well as stress-wise. And I think that there's also this sensation of you're here at college, you're feeling like you're in your own little groove, you are an individual, you're doing your own thing, and then you go back home, and that can feel a little bit dysregulating sometimes because you're right, thrown right back into those family dynamics. So that can bring a lot out in students too, I think. So I certainly think going home can bring out a lot of both happy experiences and also some more stressful experiences as well. What kind of issues do you see a lot of students dealing with as they go home? What are, what are some of the more common issues you see? Yeah, definitely anxiety is a big one. Um, I would say that that's probably the main one. Sometimes other things like depression symptoms. Um, there can also be just other things that aren't necessarily what I would call disorders, but just kind of things that you're struggling with, like sleep or having a change in appetite, things like that um, would probably be the most common ones, I would say. All right. Uh, so as students head home, do you think that there are any steps they should take? Are there any kind of warning signs or issues that you might um, see as a warning sign that they might be dealing with some issues? Yeah, I think what we usually think about is when 
you start to see a change in being able to function. So being able to complete things like doing assignments and homework or completing things that you need to get completed, sleep problems. If you're feeling like it's kind of your stress anxiety is bleeding into social situations or you're having a hard time just keeping up with things, that can be a sign that maybe the areas where we want you to be functioning at an optimal level are not working out so well. And in those cases, it might be important to think about what changes might I need to make and or is this something that I might need to seek additional support for. All right. Do you think that um, there are any kind of uh, family-related issues or just vis issues with um, kind of visiting home that mm -hmm. especially arise? Yeah, definitely. Kind of like I mentioned earlier, I think it can be a little bit dysregulating to be here in the college community and then go back home right away and kind of having this experience of you were in college and now you're back home and all these different things are coming up and similar family dynamics are coming back up. And I also hear college students a lot say, I felt like I've grown and changed a lot in college and then I go home and I feel like I'm right back in high school. So I think that that definitely comes up a fair amount. Do you feel like um, these issues might ever be related to things like say independence or um, kind of like self, uh, kind of trying to rely on oneself when in college? Yeah, it's a really big time for developing your own identity and figuring out who you are as a person in college. I think that's a big piece of being here. And when you go home, you're kind of integrating those family dynamics and also this phase of life where maybe you weren't as independent. And how do you integrate those two features together? So I think that that's a really awesome question and something that comes up a ton for college students, especially as you're trying to identify and integrate who you are as a person with also who you were in high school and how that fits with family dynamics when you go back home. Kind of uh, with college um, and heading home, part of that also sometimes relates to things like party culture or just kind of like um, this culture of just having being surrounded by people of your own age. Do you feel like uh, kind of issues like that can also cause um, any kind of problems visiting home? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely depends on each individual and everyone handles this differently, but there is definitely a party culture here in college and at most universities, and there is kind of this sense of freedom here as well. And when you go back home, that can be really difficult. And how do you interact with rules that parents set or kind of the expectations and what it's like to be back in your hometown? Even if you live in Boulder, what can it be like to be just back with your family versus what it's like to be here as a student, especially if the party culture is a big piece of your life here. How does it feel then to go home and have these different expectations possibly or these different expectations of you? And so I think that too can be a really big shift and can often feel a little bit dysregulating for students who are kind of switching between these two worlds if they feel pretty different. Um, with the winter coming, do you see an increase in uh, any kind of like um, issues related to mental health, say like things like seasonal depression, mm -hmm. or kind of seasonal affective disorder? Yes. Um, so with the winter in general, I think it's pretty common in most of the population, not most, maybe more like 20% reporting, 20% would say that they experience a change in mood. Maybe it's a little bit more difficult to get out of bed in the morning, maybe isolating a little bit more because it's cold outside or just feeling more fatigued and tired with the days being a little bit shorter and it's darker quicker um, so I would say that's pretty common with just the general population and then there is a smaller percent of the population but still a fair amount of individuals who do experience seasonal affective disorder and so that's a subgroup of depression it's a type of depression and that is a little bit more um, 
severe symptoms like really having this loss of motivation, loss of interest in things you used to enjoy, feeling tired all the time, difficulty concentrating. It can also include sadness and decreased mood, loss of interest in things that you used to enjoy. And that can correlate with the changing seasons. And so that's what seasonal affective disorder is. And it really correlates with once the weather starts to change, you start to notice these symptoms increase. All right. And, uh, with uh, visiting home and some issues like this, mm-hmm. some uh, people suffering from these issues might not have supportive families or understanding families, yeah. or they might kind of like lack the same support network they do here at Boulder. Totally. What kind of advice do you think you'd give to students who might be dealing with that kind of a situation? Yeah, that's a big one too for going home and students who are kind of starting experiencing these things might think, I don't know how my family is going to react. I don't know if I have the same support. Maybe family is the problem. There's a lot of things wrapped up in that. And so what I would say for that is it's really important to identify what your support networks are and where they are. So if they're here, being able to reach out to somebody here, even if you're not here, but being able to call somebody, Skype somebody, something like that. And I would also say that there's a lot of resources available. We have a ton here. The CAPS uh, main number line is always open even after hours. You can always call and talk to an on-call therapist after hours um, if you're not here or if it's after our office closes. And then there's a bunch of other support lines too, like the Colorado Crisis Line and other numbers like that, that can be a really nice way to have this additional support, even if you can't physically go in somewhere and ask for help. Thank you. Do you think you see any kind of issues as well that aren't as commonly talked about? Um, Any kind of issues that go kind of unnoticed that still need to be addressed? Mm -hmm. Specifically around the holidays or just in general? A little more around the holidays, but if you think there are any in general that should be kind of pointed out, I'd love to hear that too. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of a variation. There's a lot of different issues that aren't always addressed, but I think one of the big ones I would say is a lot of people think that you're just stressed, you're just tired, and sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's symptoms of a bigger thing going on, so that can be things like anxiety. Um, like depression and then there's other things too around this age is when we start to see uh, the first stages of some of the more um, intense disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and those different things can look different ways for everyone and I think there's sort of this culture of we're all stressed we're all trying to get through all working really hard and sometimes that's not noticed and even when you go home sometimes it can be really apparent of I'm still home and I'm not feeling okay I'm not working and I'm still feeling these different things uh, for those for those listening who might not have uh, or personally be dealing with these kind of issues but have mm-hmm. friends who might be able to yeah. do you think uh, there's anything that uh, some should do to help maybe their friends or family members or roommates with these issues if they have them or Yeah, that is such a good question because I think we all know somebody who might be struggling or we wonder, are they they okay? What do I do? And it's hard to know what to do too. And I think the important thing here is to think about what is your scope or ability here because there are trained professionals to deal with this and you are not a trained professional. And so it's not your responsibility to have to, you know, do a daily assessment for like suicidal risk. Are you thinking of harming yourself? And if someone comes to you with those things, I think it's really important to be able to provide those resources. Like, okay, let's maybe go talk to somebody. Let's see about these resources that are available to you. CAPS is available. There's the suicide crisis line available to you. And those are really good resources to help you figure out what are the next steps to do? What do I want to do? And we also have um, 
I think on our website, actually, the CAPS website, they have this exact section that talks about what to do if you're concerned with someone. And so we also have these um, sessions throughout campus that are called Let's Talk. And so they're placed in different buildings throughout campus throughout the week. And those can even be just consultation sessions where you can go and be like, hey, I'm feeling nervous about this person or I don't know what to do. And you can get support and consultation around that as well. So I really think it's important to think about what are your limits and also what are the resources available to you? If it seems like this person's sad or they're just having a hard time, if you feel comfortable supporting them, that's one thing, but also make sure that you're using the professional resources available to you. Do you think there's anything kind of external um, that happens either on campus or kind of like with the, as we were talking about a minute ago, the kind of college culture that can affect these kind of issues? Like, is there anything externally outside of, you know, just uh, regular issues that might affect uh, how someone deals with these kind of problems? Yeah, I think that there can be a ton of external issues. I think the college culture is one of them. I think this kind of culture of also working really hard and probably overworking ourselves, this culture of independence sort of figure it out yourself, I think is another big piece in society just in general. Um, and I think that there's also this piece around self-compassion and like, is it okay to do that? Is it okay to be kind to ourselves? Is it okay to take a break from studying and do nice things for ourselves? And I think that that can sometimes be pretty challenging for students to feel like it's okay to take care of yourself. I would say that that's one that I see a ton. Um, and in that same line, I also want to acknowledge that there's a lot going on in the world right now. And I think that certainly impacts students quite a bit. With, uh, with what you just said, the uh, things going on around the world, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of uh, what kind of events are you talking about there? Because that makes me a little bit curious. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of things politically that are happening. There's things on immigration that I think bring up a lot of stressors for a lot of different people. Um, and you know, CAPS can't take a political position either way, but we do acknowledge that there are these tensions going on in the world and there are a lot of things around women's rights. There are a lot of things around LBGTQ and trans communities. All of these different pieces are coming up a lot these days and it seems like it would be expected that, of course, the students here in Boulder are affected by those and impacted by those. And it can be a really, really challenging and unsettling place to be when it feels like a lot of these things are also out of your control or you don't know what will happen or maybe you don't feel safe to even talk about these things. Uh, is there any kind of course of action you might recommend for someone who uh, knows someone who might be struggling but might not be a uh, student here at Boulder is there any kind of like a can anyone come to the CAPS office or uh, is there anywhere that um, they can take non-students if they need help Ooh, that's a really good question so CAPS is specifically for students um, the one exception would be for like couples therapy if one of you is a student the other partner does not have to be um, but for individuals who are not part of the CU community, there are a bunch of mental health resources across Colorado and in other states, too. I'm not as familiar with the ones not in Colorado. But for here, you know, there's mental health partners and they're in Boulder. And then there's a bunch of different ones throughout like Greeley, Denver, Fort Collins. All of them have crisis walk-in centers. They have community mental health resources. And then again, that Colorado crisis line can be a really good support for even just saying, I'm concerned. I don't know what to do. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Can you help me? And they are really great at providing resources and kind of directing you in what way you need to go. Um, I would say that if you're a student here, you can certainly ask for support too from CAPS in helping to figure this out. So you can always come into a walk-in between, I believe, 10 and 3.30 any weekday. 
and it can be you know hey i'm I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. Do you have resources for this person? Same with the let's talk drop-ins. That's a great way to look into that as well. And our website might even actually um, talk about the other resources that are available for individuals who are not part of the CU Boulder community. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the questions I do have is mm -hmm. if you were talking to someone who might be struggling with these issues right now, yeah. uh, um, we've gone over things like advice of like where to go or how mm -hmm. to help. Um, what would you say, what, what do you think would be the best thing for them to know? Hmm. You're not alone. A lot of people really struggle, especially at this time of year. And also college is challenging. It brings up a lot of different pieces. So I think the number one thing I would say is you're not alone. A lot of people struggle and there's also a lot of support here for students on campus and not just with CAPS. There's a ton of other resources. I am frequently in contact with student support and case management who are wonderful and their number one reason for being on campus is to relieve academic pressure for students and to help students out. So there's so, so many resources. We're here for you and we want to help you. and it's okay to struggle and let's work on relieving that and trying to help you feel like you're in a better spot. Um, with uh, what you just said about uh, academic stresses, do you mm -hmm. feel like, um, do you feel like uh, what kind of academic stresses do you see? Is there anything in particular that you see kind of happening similar to the kind of like overworking culture? Yeah, um, definitely a lot of perfectionism and I can certainly relate as a former student here. I experienced that myself. Um, so I think that there's a big culture of sort of the overworking perfectionism, needing to do everything to the highest standard. I also think that just academically wise, especially midterms and finals, they're really, really stressful. You have sometimes three finals in one day and it can be really hard to manage all of those different pieces and to make sure you're staying on top of it. And I think there is also this sometimes I see this kind of dream or goal of being this really young, successful entrepreneur, really amazing success story. And that can put a lot of pressure on students. And there's just this high, high level of wanting to achieve a lot in a short amount of time. And so I think that that can really build and kind of feel overwhelming after a while. And especially around finals, when you're faced with these grades and trying to do everything at once, that can feel like a lot. As we head into finals and kind of the later midterm season, mm -hmm. do you have any advice you'd give to get, deal with um, academic stress? Yeah, I would say that the number one thing is to take care of yourself and make sure that you're being kind to yourself. You're doing that self-compassion work. And the way I like to think about that is kind of like a bucket of resources. And the more that you are able to do these helpful things for yourself, you're able to be kind to yourself. You're able to sleep well, eat well, exercise, make time to spend with people you care about or do an activity that's really rejuvenating. You're replenishing that resource bucket that you have to deal with stressful situations. And if you don't replenish it and you keep taking from it, eventually you're gonna be a little bit low on resources and it's gonna be really hard to deal with finals or stressors or a five-page paper that you find out is a 10-page paper. So it's really, really important to take care of yourself. Uh, is there anything in specific you see about kind of academia, aside from the perfectionism, like are there any elements of classes or certain courses that you hear brought up a lot when it comes to academic stress? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know if I hear about specific classes being difficult. I think I hear a lot in the sense of urgency to figure out what you're doing with your life. So a lot of trying to understand how do I plan accordingly so that I can graduate and know what I'm doing and feel like I'm going to be successful in the world. 
um, especially even just as early as freshmen, you're kind of planning out your life already. And that can feel, I think, overwhelming. And that sense of feeling like you need to have it all figured out and need to have the right classes is something that comes up a fair amount. Do you think uh, worries about the future as well can also be a big influencer on students and um, students dealing with issues? Yes, definitely. I think just the future and the unknown piece of the future can feel really uncomfortable and um, feeling like you kind of have to have things figured out and the decision that you make now will affect you later. That comes up a lot too about if I make the wrong one, is it going to affect my entire future? I think that that's a big piece for students these days. Uh, with um, with kind of thinking about the future and all, do you feel like even in a, do you feel like um, sometimes certain things like say uh, looking for somewhere to live, trying to plan out uh, work or career prospects, internships? Do you feel like those can be fairly stressful as well? Oh yeah, and we were even talking about finding places to live um, before this interview. You have to find those pretty early here, and so there's just a lot of things that you're balancing, like where are you going to live, what classes are you going to take, internships, paid or unpaid, summer jobs, what are you going to do? Are you going to go home? Are you going to stay here for the summer? What are you going to do after school? Are you going to go to grad school? Do you need to take the GRE? I think those are frequent things that come up for students and when you start to think about one thing after the other it can feel really overwhelming so a lot of advice that I give for students both with future thinking and also around finals is to try and break things up into smaller doable chunks so when you start to think about everything you have to do it feels really overwhelming and then you feel unmotivated and unable to do it and you're kind of stuck but if you focus on one doable thing at a time and just do one chunk after the other it becomes a lot more manageable and that can be helpful both for studying and also for thinking about your future sort of one piece at a time. Do you feel like uh, one of the things that might play into the stresses about um, the future might be certain things like maybe uncertain job markets like if someone is, has a major that might not be the most stable career field um, do you feel like that can sometimes play into stress or just um, kind of like issues with uh, mental health? Yeah definitely I think the job market is always changing and certain professions and fields, there's a lot of jobs available and others there are fewer. And so I think that that uncertainty and that ambiguity of what will the future look like is unsettling. And that's really understanding, right? I mean, it's hard to not know what you're going to do and it's hard to live in that uncertainty. It's not the most settling feeling in the world. And so I think that absolutely can play a role. Is there anything else you just would like a Radio 1190 or CU Boulder to know about dealing with issues as we head into the holiday season, visit home, and just to finish out the semester? Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I really cannot emphasize enough this piece of taking care of yourselves. And if I had to give one plug, I would say sleep is so, so, so important. And make sure that you're getting a good amount of sleep. It helps you so much. It elevates mood. It keeps you from getting sick. It's hugely, hugely important. Um, and I would say the last thing is, again, we're here to support you. We want to be there for you. And there are a lot of resources available to you. You're not alone. And it's okay to struggle. And we're here to help you through that process. All right. Thank you, Rachel. Thank yeah. you for coming on down. And thank you for talking with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Radio 1190. I've got uh, Rachel here from CAPS. And we will see you on Monday. Thank you.